You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Let's open the Bible together. I want to invite you uh, on a journey that we've been on as a church for the last couple of years that that if, Lord willing, everything goes as planned, we'll wrap up this, uh, this coming March and April. That is, we've been walking through, as is our custom, a book of the Bible. Uh, we've been in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That word, that word gospel simply means good news. But it's the first book of the entire New Testament. And so, as, as such, it, it introduces us to the good news of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're in the 26th chapter. So if you don't have a smartphone or a Bible uh, that you have access to, there's a paperback Bible uh, that we want to make our gift to you in the tray of the chair in front of you. In fact, if you've never opened one, don't be afraid of the table of contents. Uh, there's treasures for you and for me and for everyone, even if this is one of the, uh, the first or the thousandth time you opened a Bible. And so uh, there are 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. The reason that's important is that we find ourselves in the in the last three chapters, and, and even some commentarians, some scholars would call the last three chapters, chapters the epilogue. That is, uh, for the first two-thirds of the Gospel of Matthew, and the other Gospel writers do this as well, uh, the first two-thirds of the Gospel of Matthew is, is simply a preview, or it covers th- 30 to 33, maybe even can you consider two to 4,000 years, uh, in the course of two-thirds of the book. And then in the last third or so of the Gospel, it covers one single week. And we find ourselves in these last few chapters covering the course of a few days. And so this is one of the last days of the life of Jesus here. We find ourselves getting closer and closer and closer to the cross. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, seasonally speaking, uh, we've tried to to, to make this so that we wrap up the resurrection uh, on, in Matthew chapter 20, 28, this coming Easter, that we celebrate the resurrection. Um, and so as Christians for the last couple, uh, last couple you know, dozen centuries uh, have commemorated this time of the year as a way to remember and reflect upon the death of Jesus, I, I hope that our journey through the Gospel of Matthew serves as a powerful tool for you to do that. The second thing is, one of the things I want you to consider, and and I might spend a little more time on this than I need to today, but I'll come back to, is that as as we reflect upon here the story of Jesus being betrayed, handed over, put on trial, miscarriage of justice takes place to where he is executed, publicly crucified before he's resurrected, what can come into view is the sentimental versus what I would call the substance. Uh, now, if you've been around here for a while, I, I try to, as best I can, push back against the sentimental um, for the purpose of substance, especially on, around Christmas, right? Christmas is the time of the year where we're most inundated with the most sentimental of things, uh, and, and it's possible to celebrate Christmas with a like 100% sentimentality and not consider its meaning or purpose at all. Um, and, and again, are you like, well, you, you're such a jerk, you hate sentimentality. No, sentimentality is awesome when it's subject to substance. It's actually a beautiful thing that God gives us. And so when I say that, what's, what's on display here is, I'll come back to in just a moment, is the meaning and purpose of what we commemorate in the season of Lent leading up to the season of Easter. That is the meaning and pers- purpose, the substance, as it were, of the death of Jesus, not just a sentiment. So, Jesus has come, he's returned, he has finished his final, uh, most famous discourse, the fifth of the five, and now he is in the last night that he will, and and we find here in the the passage we're going to read, the last moments that he will be with his disciples. So we're going to begin reading in verse 36, and we're going to read all the way to verse 56. Now, this section, like the previous section, is set apart by the first word. And you'll see this se- the next section is set apart by that first word. And that's that word, then. So it's as if to say Matthew is, is telling us about this last night that Jesus is with his disciples before he is literally handed over, that is separated from his very disciples. And this section is marked by the word, then. So beginning in verse 36, right after he is 
taught them about the, how they will celebrate the Passover from then on out as a representation of God's deliverance that comes through his body and through his blood. And after predicting that, in fact, Judas would betray him, now these things start to come into focus. So beginning in verse 36, then. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going, see, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. We are in the middle of the height, as it were, the climax, as it were, of Jesus and His journey to the cross. Multiple times, Jesus has predicted this, this will happen. Multiple times, Jesus has said to them, this, this is what will happen. If, if, if that weren't enough, it got even more specific, more painful. If you want to Flip back with me to the very verse, first verse of the 26th chapter. Flip back there with me. And so the beginning of this whole chapter and the last three chapters of what we would think of as the, the final climax of the book starts with Jesus saying that he had finished, when Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and then the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And now it's happening. Now it's happening. 
multiple times he has told his disciples, this will happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to set my sights on this. And multiple times they either didn't understand or even at the worst, they actually opposed it. We'll see another potential example of that even in this passage. And so Jesus has predicted his death. In this very chapter, Jesus had predicted not even that he would die, but that he would die the worst possible death, the most vulgar and crass of death. At least for the season of Lent, and at least for the chapters that lay ahead for us, we are on the way to the cross. We are on the way to the cross. Jesus sees it. He wants his disciples to see it. And in these two particular passages, we see two different ways in which Jesus is taking deliberate and powerfully intentional steps toward the cross. I think you see two sections here. The first section, as, as it's kind of outlined in the Bible, you see here in those maybe first 10 or so verses, you see the, the agony the agony and humanity of Jesus. But then you also see in the second section the betrayal, the powerful betrayal and abandonment of Jesus. Now, this particular chapter is full of, and I'll do my best to point them out as they come, uh, come to the surface, is full of doctrines of the church. That is, many Christian doctrines are piled into these passages. Uh, a dense, uh, like a dense packing of what Christians believe. Now, if you're not a Christian in this room, or maybe you're just curious about Christianity, maybe you're not sure about this whole thing, or, or maybe at the very least you've wondered why Christians have believed certain things about Jesus that probably, not probably, certainly seem strange. I want you to see, one, I'm really glad you're here. Two, here, here's where you can bring your questions. That is, doctrines about the true humanity of Jesus are visible. What we believe about the humanity of Jesus are visible here. What we believe about the soul sufficiency of Christ alone for God's redemptive work are visible here in these verses we just read. Christian doctrine about violence and nonviolence are found in seed form here. Christian doctrines about temptation. The doctrines and beliefs about the purpose and even the methods of prayer are found here. And I think what you even find here is belief about the substitutionary atonement. I, I know that that's a, a, big, a big, big bad word. You don't have to remember. What we believe about what Jesus did in our place begin to be visible here in this chapter. So I want to walk through some of these things. He's predicted the cross is on the way. And you, in the first 36 through 46, you get a picture of Jesus in his agony and his suffering in Gethsemane. The first thing I think you see is the truly human nature of Jesus. The truly human nature of Jesus. Look at the language used to describe what Jesus is like. Jesus went to them, went with him to a place called Gethsemane. Now, uh, previous to this, he's been in Jerusalem proper in the city he goes up on a mountain that is the Mount of Olives, or, or he steps away in a mountain roughly, a higher point that overlooks the city. He takes them out to a garden. Not only that, but he, he takes not just the twelve, but uh, notice, as, as we've seen this before, in the transfiguration upon a mountain where, where, where Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus explode like lightning uh, in the company of the prophets. He takes again Peter and who? The two sons of Zebedee. Here's a picture uh, I think is uh, that we, we try to describe even in the life of our church why we do certain things the way that we do. When we think about the primary calling of the local church is to follow Jesus and to make other followers. That is, to be disciples of, learners from Jesus and invite others to be disciples as well. So I, I want you to know if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, the invitation is extended. Come, come, come follow Jesus with us. Come find the hope that we found in him. Come find the rest and comfort and joy that we found in him. And you might ask, well, how do you go about doing that? Well, well this is one of the ways. Jesus regularly taught and influenced and led others through crowds. We see him teaching on five different occasions to crowds. So we think of discipleship as you're, it's happening right now. This is forming you. This is shaping you. 
in so many different ways. One of the most obvious ways I, I draw attention to uh, as many times as I can, I want to stretch your attention span for the reading and teaching of God's Word. Think of it this way. I want to stretch your attention span for hearing from God. So you're going to sit still in a row with other people for what I am certain will feel like a very, very, very long time. Now that's relative. Our attention spans are as small as they ever have been, right? But, but even then, think about how we are being shaped, I hope. I don't want to abuse that privilege or abuse your attention span, but think of, right now, you are being shaped in the very act of sitting in a posture of receptivity to hear from God. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He would gather crowds and do that. And that's why we do this. But, but this isn't it. This isn't the whole part and parcel of the life of following Jesus. We, we think at least three other, there are more, but at least three other modes and methods that Jesus used is that he discipled the twelve he, he funneled even down into smaller groups because you know in a smaller context, different things can happen. The very dynamic of how God has created us to relate changes with the number of people you put in a particular space. And so Jesus was following with the 12. This is for us gospel communities. We are not a church with gospel communities. We are a church of gospel communities. In fact, you can't be a member of Connection Church unless you're a part of this. Why? We're just, we're just trying to do what Jesus did. This is our, our, our frail and feeble attempt to simply, we think, well, if Jesus gathered 12 people around them, let's get a handful of people together and follow Jesus. You get the idea? But then on, on top of that, we, we regularly build and carve out time for what we would call pods or cohorts, uh, smaller groups of people to, to do more in-depth studies, reading books, reading books of the Bible, you, you know, gathering to fight sin together. And you might ask, why would we do that? It's the same here. There's something powerful that happens in a group of two to three people. Think of quite explicitly here, there is a deeper intimacy with Jesus, the more narrow it becomes. And then lastly, we think that Jesus regularly had conversations that were pretty direct and one-on-one. You'll see, especially in the Gospel of John, he pulls Peter aside and says, get behind me, Satan. That's not something you could do in a crowd, right? At least not if you wanted to stay a crowd. It wouldn't be helpful for me to go, you, I mean, I didn't mean to do that. I accidentally pointed at the group of people. I didn't mean to do that. If I were to single someone out and say, get behind me, Satan, that's It's quite a move. That doesn't really work on a crowd of people. You get the idea? Well, again, think of like, where do we get this? We get this from this picture of Jesus going deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. And so too, our best attempt, feeble though it may be, and Christian churches for the last 2,000 years have done this in some way, shape, or form or another, is to go deeper and deeper with Jesus with fewer and fewer people. Now, that's not the point of the text, but notice what you do see on display his humanity. That is, in the deepest, loneliest, most difficult time of need, look at Jesus longing for and desiring companionship. That is a uniquely, right, a uniquely human feature. All mammals, in that sense, are united in the fact that they depend upon social interaction and social relationship to survive. This is not an accident. This is a beautiful picture of how God has created us to exist. Human beings cannot survive without social interaction. I mean that in the most powerful and literal sense. A child that is born cannot survive on its own. And that, I want you to realize, is not an accident. It is not a flaw. It is a feature. It testifies to the guiding and creative hand of God. And so too you see the humanity of Jesus. And in his deepest, darkest, most lonely moment, what's he doing? He's longing for and drawing companionship. Even to the point where he rebukes them. Did you catch that? (laughs) Come on. Come on, on, friend, right? Come on, friend. Couldn't, Couldn't you stay awake for one hour, right? Like you see the language of keeping watch, um, now, however that may, may seem to you, uh, this idea of sitting and keeping watch, it's not lay down and take a nap, as it were. Um, and there's really, at least, I don't, there's a lot of qualifications for keeping watch, but the lowest possible qualification for keeping watch would be to have your eyes open. Right? And, and notice what he's saying. He's saying, you could, not, you could not reach the lowest possible bar. 
you begin to see his loneliness. Don't you see that? Now, friend, I don't think I have to go too far to, to illustrate this, but have you experienced that part of humanity? Have you experienced that feeling that you're all alone? Have you experienced that deep longing for companionship? Two things. One, don't push, away, don't push it away. Don't run into isolation. This is how God created you to exist. That longing for companionship, that longing to be not left alone has been planted there by your creator and it is built into you to be fulfilled by him as well. Augustine, a saint of the early church, an African bishop, uh, we paraphrase regularly in his own confessions, said that we are, in this sense, restless. We find ourselves restless until we find our rest in our creator. Look at the humanity of Jesus desiring companionship. Look at the humanity of Jesus in his agony, his sorrow. Did, did you, going a little further, it says in verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed. Now, begin uh, to kind of picture in this. I, I don't know that this is the second way I would ask this. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, in desperation, cried out to God, and I can't even look up, you, you kind of picture the, 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 right, the, the tax collector and the, the Pharisee that Jesus tells us about elsewhere, that there's the tax collector who, who can't even look up, he just stands in the back and is like, oh, God have mercy on me, beats his chest, what, what, what will be done with me? As opposed to the Pharisee who's like, man, I, I'm, I'm glad, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that person, I'm glad I'm not like that person, I'm glad I'm better, you get the idea? Have you ever, have you ever been there? On your face, God help me praying the kinds of prayers that are, that are beyond words. They're just, oh God, oh God. Well, Jesus has too. Jesus has done the exact same thing. Look at his humanity on display here. He is the truly human one. Well, why is that important? Again, doctrinally speaking, you don't have to remember this, but one of the earliest Christian heresies of Gnosticism was this belief in docetism. Again, you don't have to remember the word, but you do have to remember the concept. That is that there was a belief that Jesus was not really human. That Jesus was some sort of spiritual or divine apparition. Some sort of like divine appearance, but not truly human. Now, the reason that's important is that if Jesus is not truly and fully human, then whatever is happening here is simply a pantomime. It, it's simply some sort of like puppetry of God. It is not God actually coming to bear the weight of the sin and the wrath that, that our rebellion deserves. Instead, it's just some sort of like distant hocus pocus. And this is the beauty of what we believe about the incarnation. Again, not a word that I care that you remember, but there, I care that you remember the concept that the God of the universe is not up there. The God of the universe is not out there. The God of the universe has to come to be with us, for us, and like us. On the heels of the season of Advent, we commemorate this. We remember that the distinctly Christian doctrine is that in the manger, in that feeding trough, for the first time in history, people no longer looked up to find God. They looked down. So that anyone, right, anyone who didn't even have the strength to lift their head could look down and see the lowliness of God condescending to our level. Get it? This is why this is important. There are two parts, I think, of this particular passage I want to draw attention to. The first one is all the ways that we are instructed by and find great example in Jesus. But then uh, where I want to end is all the ways that that's not the case. That is, in the first part of this, I think there's, there's ways we see that Jesus is doing something that we can relate to we can sympathize with, we can identify with, and then there's something else going on here that Jesus is doing that we cannot identify with. Here's one of the second things we see Jesus doing that's a powerful instruction for us. You see the tension of God's predetermined will and yet the freedom to rebel against it. Did you get that? Even just before this, he's predicted like, look, the Son of Man will be handed over in verse 24 just as it is written of him. Yet woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man to not been born. We see that happen, that betrayal take place in the second half with Judas. But we see God's predetermined will, even in the language of Jesus' prayer, not my will, but yours, 
and the tension between God's plan and purpose and will, and yet this evident freedom to rebel against it. And both of these things are true. Both of these things are powerfully true. That God is sovereign. God is over and has power and authority and majesty and glory over every single molecule that exists. And yet, at the same time, human beings are responsible for what they do. And, and I know you'll ask, how can that be? And I would just say, you, sh- you should ask God that. That's a great question. This is the mystery. This is the mystery of existence. Now, practically speaking, this is one of the foundations doctrinally for what we would call the history of Christian thought. Christian thinkers are able to hold two truths in tension at the same time. It's not because you're special. It's not because you're smart. It's how God created you. Side note, this is especially important whenever people are really afraid, whenever people are really angry, whenever people are really unsettled, when they're deeply insecure, they revert to what we'll call the nuclear option. Everything becomes either or, everything becomes like black or white, good and evil. Have you heard any of this rhetoric lately? Well, woe to a Christian who does it. The only black and white, the only good and evil, as a Christian understands it, is the goodness and righteousness and perfection of God and the rebellious sinfulness of humanity. That's the black and white. That's the good versus evil. And in Jesus Christ, this unlikely pair, a righteous and holy God and rebellious sinful people are brought together and united. This informs our thinking. This is what explains Christian thought. It is possible to believe that two truths are true at the same time in ways that don't cancel each other out. God is sovereign over everything, and you are responsible. Now, this is powerful because this gives us a sense of, again, I can't can't describe this any other way than this is what Christian thought is. This is the gift of Christian thinking, of revelation, of understanding to the world. So, that being said, beware. On display here is the self-evident tension between the plan and will and sovereignty of God and the will of a human being. Now that bothers us, but that's because we're not God. That's all a part of God's mysterious will to reveal his glory. And again, if you think you can understand it, good for you, but if you find yourself like the rest of humanity, finding that to be a mystery, well, join the club. It's a mystery because you're not God. I want you to see something else that's visible here. Not just the tension between God's predetermined will and, and the freedom to rebel against it, evident in Jesus, but you also see the very unflattering depiction of Jesus' agony. He falls on his face. You find him crying out to his friends like, why have you left me? Like, can't, can't you be with me? Can't you, just, can't you just be present with me? This is distinctly Christian as well. That is, I shared this with you last week, but this will be a, a refrain going all the way up to the crucifixion. Every single, every single founder of every single world religion dies a fairly flattering death, right? In their old age or in some sort of success with some sort of wealth, inheritance, victory, prestige, and power, right? Not Jesus. This is the kingdom he brings that is upside down from the world. He dies a powerfully unflattering death. Next, you see the suffering, not only at the hands of his enemy, but this, this, this will be the most revelatory for some of you. You find him suffering, not just at the hands of his enemy, but the hands of his friends. After all, there is suffering that comes from an enemy, no doubt. Many of you have felt that. Many of you have endured the kind of pain and agony that comes from sin in the world, and sinful people doing awful things that hurt other people. We've all seen that. Yet there is a deeper, I would argue, a deeper, more painful hurt. It's suffering at the hand of your friend. Suffering at the hand of someone you love and trust. This is important because we find the necessity of God establishing his kingdom through suffering. You find the suffering of the Messiah, 
to public shame and an excruciating death, beginning here. Next, I think you see the model prayer. We saw this in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The most famous part of the most famous sermon is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, and did you hear Jesus? is the only time in the Lord's Prayer in which he taught his disciples how to pray that we see him modeling that prayer elsewhere. There's no other time that we see this. Jesus himself praying, thy will be done. What a powerful example. What a powerful lesson for you and I in prayer. That to look at the world and yet to submit to God's will comes at great cost. You also see the tension between the spirit and the flesh. Did you hear his consolation to his disciples? Look, after he rebukes them, can't you stay awake? He then consoles them. I know, I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As if to kind of say something, a, a compassion towards them. A picture of what it means to live in tension in this life. That there is something implanted by God, by the power of His Spirit, that longs for good things. And yet we are regularly wrestling with, the Apostle Paul will say, sin, flesh, and the devil. We will always feel this, a sense of being burdened by our bodies, our weakness, our frailty. In the next section, you see a few things as well. I'll only point out a few. You see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. First thing I think it's on display is the shocking nature of the hypocritical betrayal. Now, this is poetic. Um, if you think in, in terms of literature, um, this is one of the most powerful and poetic pictures of betrayal that exists. Right? So much so that it shows up elsewhere in other literature. Uh, at least Western literature uh, post-third century. Like this idea that there is nothing worse than, as, it, as we find here, being betrayed by a kiss, right? Just think about that. This, this is the most intimate thing, right? Just, again, imagine right now someone around you kissing you, right? That, that ought to, if you're human, make you a little uncomfortable, right? There might be one, two people in this room that you're like, that sounds cool, right? Uh, and the rest, ooh, right? It's like, why? Because that's, that's a special play. There, there's something about kissing, something about a face being close to another. Like, there's nothing like that. This, this is a beautiful picture, again, of the, of the powerful majesty of the image of God on display in humanity, in intimate and compassionate relationships. And at the same time, you see the effects of sin. Sin has the power to take the most beautiful, intimate, tender, gentle, and glorious thing and turn it into something destructive. This is what sin does. This is what sin can do to relationships. This is what sin can do to sexuality. This is what sin, right, can, can do in the church. This is what sin, especially from the very beginning of the Bible on, can do in the family. And I regularly try to you know, console people when they say they have a dysfunctional family. That's a redundancy. There's no other kind. Uh, there's, only, there's no such thing as a dysfunctional family. That's just called family, right? And, the whole, and, and if you think that, you just need to read Genesis. You haven't read the Bible. The, the whole first book of the Bible, the entire first book, the whole thing, like all 50 chapters is how sin jacks up families. It the first place that sin causes irreparable harm is in the most intimate relationships. How powerful to know that Jesus knows what that's like. You see that on display in that second section, don't you? Beginning in verse, beginning in verse 56, 57. You also see the tension between, or excuse me, 47. The tension between the way of the sword and the way of suffering. At least redemptive suffering. Did you hear Jesus' rebuke in that second section? We see that one of the disciples, as he has come to be arrested, pulls out a sword. Now, uh, the Gospel of John regularly does this. He tells us a little bit more because that's what John's like. Um, but notice at least here that, that Matthew does not tell us the details of this. We get the names and the identity, and, and you know, I'll let you do your own Googling and read the Gospel of John to find out who this is and how it plays out. Uh, but at least for this purpose, notice that 
This person is unnamed. This is not the first time this has happened. Remember, even just a chapter previous to this, when, uh, or, or uh, sections previous to this, when the woman at Bethany anoints Jesus, for Matthew, in this gospel, she's unnamed. Why is that the case, right? Anytime this character is unnamed, you're meant to see yourself. You're meant to, because that's just what literature does. When you hear a story and they're like, and there was this other person no one could name, you immediately start to fill in, again, because we're narcissists, uh, but this is also just part of the, part of the story. We, we start to fill in those blanks with ourselves. So notice what Matthew is doing. He's saying some, there, there was one person who just happened to pull out a sword and chopped off a man's ear. Now, again, he wasn't like some sort of a, a ninja who could chop off ears. He was aiming for the head, okay? You know, <laughs> no, uh, that's not a thing. At least I'm not going to wear like, oh, this is how you win a sword fight. You cut off their ears. No. He was swinging for the head. He was going for death. And look what Jesus says. As, as, this, as these people try to take, uh, as his own disciples try to, try to stop what's happening, they see the betrayal. Jesus says, go ahead. Then those who were with him in verse 51 stretched out the hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus rebukes them. Put your sword back into its place. And then what the, the warning he gives for those who take the sword. In other translations, you'll hear this more poetic. For those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Excuse me, by the sword. All who take the sword, as it were. Take being the idea of gripping or holding fast to. All that grip fast to the sword will die by the sword. Notice the tension between the way of the world, the way of worldly power, and the way of suffering. Lastly, in that section, notice Jesus' rebuke. Jesus' rebuke of this covert, covert dark means of apprehending him. You see the calmness of Jesus? I don't know, uh, I don't know how this strikes you, but if, uh, if a crowd of people you know, came to arrest you or came after you, uh, you see this powerful picture of Jesus here. Well, while even though he's in agony, while even he's in distress and he's being disappointed uh, by the people who have betrayed him and who are leaving him, you still see him somehow like facing the crowd. They came up to Jesus and, and began to, uh, to attempt to arrest him and lay his hands on him. And, and Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, again, we find a more powerful picture. Jesus is like, here I am, and, and the first people who came upon Jesus were knocked off their feet. It was like the power and majesty of Jesus as if to display, you're going to arrest me, but it's not against my will. You're going to arrest me because that's exactly what I'm commanding you to do. Nothing will happen to me that is not allowed. And so he says, don't you think that I can appeal to my father? Don't you think in verse 53 that in any given moment I could command 12 legions of angels? You get this beautiful picture even of Elisha, right? Uh, as Elisha, you know, and, and calling, calling chariots of fire around as they're, they're surrounded, being ambushed in the, in the first half of, of 2 Kings. And, and he cries out to his servants like, oh that, oh, that my servant might see and his eyes might be open. And he, his eyes are open and he sees not only the, the, the armies encamped around them, but he sees, it says, armies and, of chariots of fire encamped around those and this powerful statement that that we hold fast to that he says those he says you know, like alas right those that are with us are greater than those that are with them and you see jesus calling on that kind of imagery like look I, at any given moment i could call down fire from heaven i could do whatever i want and then he rebukes them you came at me like i'm some sort of a robber with swords but couldn't you have just done this couldn't you have just done this when I was publicly teaching? Two things are on display here. One, again, you see the covert, covert and dark means of apprehending him. You see this, this powerful rebuke. After all, you see this for the rest of the story of the New Testament and as well as the old. One of the worst things that a person could do is to start a riot. And so more than, on more than one occasion, you see the Pharisees saying, we don't want to apprehend him in public because we're afraid we'll start a riot. Remember, you see this in, 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 in the Apostle Paul as they're sharing the gospel and planting churches in the, in, in the book of Acts, and they accuse him, like, they're starting riots, and Paul is very clear to say, no, we wouldn't do that. It was them, right? It was the, it was the rabble of Thessalonica, for example, that started this riot. So they're, they're intentionally knowing that what they were doing would be rejected by the people, and so they, as best they can, cover it in the covert nature of the dark. 
The second thing you see, again, is the picture of Jesus experiencing something that are not out of his control. As if to say, you could apprehend me at any given moment, but fine, come and take me. I sat in the temple teaching. Think of Jesus here saying, not once have I run and hid from you. Not once have I avoided confrontation. But then he says, powerfully, verse 56, every single bit of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures, that the prophecy and promises of God might be fulfilled in your seeing. And here's the kicker, the last phrase, let it sit on you, then all, all the disciples left him and fled. Well, what do we learn from this? Let's look at first at the things that we learn from his temptation, his agony, and his betrayal. Things that we learn that we can begin to, I think, be instructed by. You see the powerful picture of prayer, don't you? You see the powerful picture of companionship. You see the the powerful tension between the difficulty that Jesus is facing, agony that he's facing, and yet confidence in the sovereign will of God. You see him experiencing the deep and agonizing pain of betrayal and abandonment. All of these things we can identify with, can't we? Like every single one of like you think of the promise of the, the book of Hebrews, that Jesus came as a high priest, not as God who was up there and out there, but a high priest who can come and sympathize with us in every possible way. You can connect with that. You can learn from that. Aren't these powerful examples for you and for me? Look at how he obeys, right? Look at how he submits to God's will in the midst of adversity. You and I can be rebuked and encouraged by that, can't we? Look at how he prays. Even more powerfully, look at how he forgives. Do you see it on displays? His friends betray him, and what's his response? He's like, compassion. I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so look at all the ways that we can learn from his temptation. Look at all the ways we can learn from his agony. And yet there's something else going on here. There are things happening here that we can't relate to. While there are powerful examples Jesus gives us here, things we can emulate, things we can identify with, there are also ways that we can't relate to his temptation and agony at all. Think of one on display, the most powerful one is the language of the cup. The agony that he experienced in the cup that he is facing. Why is this important? Because Jesus came bearing the weight of something no one could imagine the cup of sin and the wrath of God. There is no other account of someone facing death for the rest of the New Testament so badly. Right? Even the first of the Christian martyrs, as you start to see Stephen uh, in, in the first third of the book of Acts, even he faces, like, he's like, fine, you know, if you're going to kill me, great. You're gonna, you're right, it's like, may God be glorified. And he preaches this powerful sermon and they stone him. And it says he was like, his face was like shining, right? Even in the story of Christian martyrs, right, the, um, you think of Ridley or Polycarp, all these people facing, facing martyrdom and, and, and yet entrusting themselves into the hands of God and saying, fine, if I must die, I must die. There is no other account of someone facing such a death like this and responding, frankly, so badly as Jesus here. Why is it? There's two reasons. One, all of those other martyrs that happened, happened after the resurrection. It happened with people who were filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. They saw in the resurrection power of Jesus what Jesus was purchasing in this place. But the second thing I think you find here is that Jesus felt an agony unlike any other because he was carrying a burden unlike any other. He was carrying the cup. This language should be familiar to you just a few seconds before, right? Uh, a few sections earlier. Uh, uh, remember, the, remember the disciples had an argument? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Even the mother, the mother of the sons of Zebedee said, hey, make it so that my son can sit on the right hand and the left hand. You pick which one, but make it to where my, my sons are the right hand and left hand men of the kingdom of God, right? And, and what does Jesus rebuke? He's like, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't even know what you're talking about. And, and, and he just asks them, can you drink the cup that I'm drinking? This is powerful because that language of cup, that language of drinking of a cup is, is a language of judgment. It's the language of some sort of lot or some sort of uh, like, like outcome that will be difficult and painful. 
And specifically, in, in the course of the Old Testament, the language of cup is identified with the cup of the wrath of God. That is that God is righteous and just. Before you're turned off or scared by the wrath of God, see the love and kindness of God and His wrath, right? Because after all, we wish that you could have love without wrath, right? You, I, I just, but I just, I just, I don't feel mad. I just love anyone. If you don't have anger, you don't have love, right? Because after all, if I harm or hurt the thing you love and you're not angry, you didn't love it. The wrath is the picture of love. The wrath is the picture of justice. If you see injustice and you're not a little bit mad, you don't really see it. And this is a picture of the character of God. His anger against sin is evidence of his righteousness and perfection. His justice is reason to trust him. He will make all things right. He cannot abide by sin. He can't coddle it. He can't, he, right, he can't even be near to it. And that thing that you know you want, whenever you see injustice, you want someone to pay, that comes from the heart of God, and so does God. The good news of Jesus is not that God does not have wrath for sinners. The good news of Jesus is that God's wrath for sinners was drank down to the dregs by Jesus. And this is evidence of his love. After all, what, what love does not come with great cost? There's uh, different reflections on this, but uh, I've, I've read a, a couple of uh, kind of authors in the, in the world of Christian apologetics th uh, kind of discuss it this way. So if this might be a helpful reflection for you. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, and you're like, I only believe in a God of love. I can't imagine a God of wrath. Well, of course, again, you can't imagine it because you're not God. Join the club. We, we apprehend it by faith. It's not something we like rationalize. And so we often wish, like, oh, there's a, I, I don't want to believe in a God that is angry or wrathful. I only have a God that loves me. But, but just ask yourself, what does love cost? All love costs. All genuine and powerful love, when it's on display, is cost. That's what love is. It is impossible absolutely impossible to love without cost. If you have conjured up a way to love without sacrifice and cost, it is not love, it is sentimentality. All love costs, and I have good news for you to think about, like what would it mean to begin to open your imagination to the possibility that the love of God is displayed that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. A great cost was paid. Jesus came bearing that weight. He responds in ways that confound us because he was bearing a weight that confounds us. The cup he was drinking, the cup that he asked the Father to take from him was the very cup of sin and wrath. Friend, take comfort in that. In a moment, we will conclude our time together by celebrating the Lord's Supper and we will drink, we will eat, we will consume in joy and celebration because one has come who is consumed in wrath and judgment. And we, right, we, we toast, as it were, because he drank to the dregs the poison that we deserved. You also see that Jesus came to be fully like us in order to be fully for us. Be comforted this morning. I know one of, the, one of the most powerful temptations that the enemy can place on you is this feeling you're all alone. I, I, know, I know that's, I, and, and that's what's ironic is every single one of you has that temptation and that feeling and you're all in the room and you still think like, I'm the only one. You're like, well, that would be true if it weren't for everyone else, right? But I just, that's one of the most powerful temptations I know the enemy has used in my life. I know one of the most powerful things the Lord, uh, the Lord has delivered me from and revealed to me are the times in my life where I thought I was all alone. And even in that moment, I was surrounded by people who were going through the same thing, but I was so, right, I was so prideful and isolating myself, like, I'm just the only one. No one knows, because that feels kind of good, right? I mean, if your life's going to be bad, it, at least it's special, right? Like, my life's terrible, but it's probably more terrible than any other life that's right. And, and it's this weird silver line. It's this weird sinful consolation we give ourselves like, well, if I'm going to be bad, I might as well be the most special bad. That, right? and, and, that's, and that's the enemy like teasing you into a false comfort. 
teasing you into thinking that will make you feel better. And I just want to encourage you, we have passages like like this to remind us that there is one who came who can sympathize with you. There is one who came who experienced loneliness and separation like you cannot imagine. From the cross, we find he declares out of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came to bear the full weight of sin, and you know one of the most powerful weights of sin is separation. And Jesus, as you see here, began to experience it. In some powerful, mysterious way, in the garden here, we see him starting to carry the weight of separation from God. Be comforted. Jesus came to be like us, to be tempted without sin, so that we could always look to him and have a companion. Jesus died alone and betrayed and abandoned so that you would never be. You may very well experience deep, deep despair and pain in your life. I would, I would never want to discount that. Right? I hope you don't hear me say, I hope you don't hear me saying like, oh, what you're doing is not that bad. It's terrible, absolutely awful. It cost the Son of God his life to redeem and repair it. It's awful. And yet, here's the one thing you will never experience because of Christ. You will never experience all of that pain and despair alone. There is one who has endured a lonely, betrayed death so that you never will. Jesus was faithful, alone in the dark, excuse me, alone in the dark struggle with no one watching. Look, I know one of the most powerful temptations that you and I can experience in isolation is the belief that we won't be found out right? If no one's looking, why be faithful? Why be good? Why be righteous? Now, on one hand, that ought to encourage you to to think more critically about repentance, uh, because if everyone saw what you really thought about in in the privacy of your own brain, it'd be rough. It'd be rough. You wouldn't have any friends left, right? Uh, And so we can be tempted to think that we're, I mean, because after all, we're all awesome in the dark, aren't we? Like we're, I'm, 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 I'm the most awesome guy I know when I'm the only guy around, right? Like, I'm, I'm just, man, I'm amazing. I'm killing it. Um, and, then, and then you're honest and you're like, shoot, I'm actually not, right? And so just be encouraged what Jesus does here. Jesus is faithful alone in the dark struggle when no one is watching. He is the perfectly obedient one. He is the one who is obeyed on your behalf. He is the one who has done what you could not do. So in light of some of these lessons, let me ask a couple of questions before we wrap up. Two things. One, where in your life do you need to be more watchful and prayerful? As we read this first passage about the disciples, just kind of falling asleep, I commend this reflection to you. Where do you find yourself being slothful, lazy, asleep at the wheel? Where do you need to be more watchful? Where do you need to be more prayerful? And here's what I know. I know for those of you in the room that have repented of your sin and looked at Jesus in faith, you have the Holy Spirit and he already has given you some answers. If you can't think of something, if you can't immediately think of this, friend, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Today's the day I want you to repent of your sin, look to Jesus, find hope, be never abandoned again with the power of the Spirit. Second question, where in your life do you need to stop resisting and submit to the redemptive purposes of God? He said to them, If you live or grip tightly, live by the sword, think of that as a picture of the world's means. After all, this is a symbol for the most powerful thing of the day, right? The power to wield the sword, the power of life and the power of death. And notice what we see on display in this passage. They were wielding it quite literally to prevent God's redemptive purpose. Jesus, at the very first verse, I'm going to the cross. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. And they wielded the most powerful thing they could think of to stop God's redemptive purpose. Not figuratively, not anagorically, analogically. I made an allegory, analog. I made a new word. Tell it to your friends, anagorically. It's an allegory, an analogy put together better. Christian thought, two truths at the same time. That's not true. Quite literally, he told them, I'm on the way to the cross. This is where I'm going. 
This is what the Son of Man has come to do. And what did they do? They pulled out swords to stop it. Where in your life do you need to stop resisting and start submitting to the redemptive purposes of God? After all, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Think of the sword as the picture for all of the world's means, for wealth, power, comfort, control. Think of the sword as a picture of all the world promises that it can give. If you live by approval, man, some of you know this. You know what I'm about to say. you're, You're already cringing. You'll die by approval. If you live for and live by power and control, it will own you and it will kill you. If you live by money, you'll die by it. If you live by political power, you'll die by it. If you live for these things that the world promises, the world promises that it will deliver all that God offers us in Christ, but if you live for these things, they'll kill you. Now, this ought to give you some sympathy for Christian pacifists, at least to say, when someone wields the sword, they are resorting to the world's greatest power, not the Spirit's greatest power. So, again, I'm, I'm, I'm simply a pastor. I care about your souls. What you do with this, I trust you will find the Holy Spirit to give you guidance. But think of it this way. However we wield power, we never wield it for vengeance. Because after all, vengeance belongs to God. So, if you're like me, maybe you're a gun bro in the room, any sense in you that's like, I want to wield power, in this case even violent power, to inflict harm rather than to protect or defend as an utterly last resort, a last resort, mind you, that if we're not careful, we will depend on and think is more powerful than God himself, then we will do so carefully. So where in your life do you find yourself hoping in the world's means? This is as political as I'll be, Okay. It's an election year, and it's going to be just like 2020. Um, it's going to be really weird, and I think Christians have a powerful opportunity to, to let, their, let their commitment to the truth of the gospel, their commitment to reasonableness and the fruit of the Spirit be on display. Um, if, you just, if you just didn't freak out for the next year, you'd look like a freak. If you were just like, yeah, I trust God, it's going to be great. That, you'd be like, what? And so I'll give you this example. This is as political as I'll be. People regularly want to know who I vote for. They want, to, they want my political opinions. And I'm like, man, I ain't got time to offend you. I have to tell people every week that they're so awful, sinful, and depraved that apart from the righteous Son of God dying on their behalf, they'll go to hell. I know. <laughs> You're that bad. And so I got, I, got, I got one bullet, right? I got like, I only have so many chips. If I'm going to offend you, I'm going to offend you with your sin and let Jesus give you hope. I'm not going to offend you with something else. But even then, I'll, people are like, well, so, so, okay, so, but really. And I talk to people like, but really, but no really, like who? And I tell people regularly, you're going to be offended at how little I care about who you vote for. You're going to be so offended. Right now, be offended. I don't even care. The kingdom of God has never come through a vote. It's never come through a sword, ever. Right, the the righteous kingdom through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, has never come through a sword, ever. And then you're like, but really, (laughs) but really. And all I want to tell you in them is like, hey, you're living by the sword, man. Living by the sword. You really think the way to change the world is through X, right? Like, you really think the way to bring joy and happiness to the world is what? Through political power or through violence or through money or through, right? What, name it. Fill in the blank, right? You really think that. And again, God will steward you with those things, but they will never, hear me clearly, they will never be able to give you what Christ alone can give you. They won't. And while they might be good in your hands, while you have them, great, they'll also kill you. If you live by them and grip to them, they will kill you. But look at what Jesus did in this garden. It's as if we get a picture of the first and second Adam. If you go all the way back, the story starts in an Adam. The story, excuse me, that some, that's metaphysically and sort of true. The story starts in a garden. And God says to a man in a garden, be faithful about a tree with respect to life and death. 
In the first garden, that first man failed. And look at what we see here. The story at its climax is a man in a garden called by God to be faithful about a tree while life and death holds in the balance. And where Adam and you and I failed in the garden about a tree, Jesus was faithful and true. And from his place in the garden, where he could see the tree, the tree upon which he would be hung, the tree upon which he would be abandoned some mysterious way by God and his very people. Right? What, this is the, pic, the, 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 the powerful contrast on display here. You could ask Matthew as he's telling this story, like, didn't you help Jesus at all? And he's like, nope. But did you at least, like, hang with him? Nope. Right? But, 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 like, but, like, you were there, right? Like, you didn't, like, run off and leave him, right? Like, you trusted him. Nope. You, you, you see the picture on display of the disobedient rebellion of humanity, of you and me in a garden and the faithfulness, the burden carried by Jesus to look at the cross, to be hung upon it, to be faithful and true in the places where you and I cannot to drink the cup of wrath and abandonment, a sorrow you and I can't imagine so that you and I will never have to. And he drank to the dregs sorrow so that you and I would never experience it. So here's our response. Number one, repent. Look to Jesus. Hope in Jesus. If you're not, if you're not a Christian in this room, here are the invitation to struggle with Jesus in the garden. Lay down your your own fear of being abandoned, experience the love and comfort of Christ as he gives it to us. But if you are a Christian, if you've repented of your sins, if your baptism is a picture of your new life in Christ, then in a moment we're going to meet at a table and we are going to eat and we are going to drink. And not a single morsel of that bite and not a single drop of that juice will contain any wrath of the Father. Every single morsel of wrath has been consumed by Jesus. Every single bit of anger, every bit of justice against sin was drank to the dregs by Jesus. And so now we can let go. We can let go of the sword, as it were, the, the world's means. I get, to, I get to shout out to all my catechism brothers and sisters. Any, are there any kids in here from catechism? Any, anybody here? No? Okay, they usually show up to the second. I assume they're all eating breakfast at Pancake House. That's why. Any catechism friends? Come on, catechism. What's our only hope in life and death? Yeah, what's our only hope in, hope in life and death? If you want to say it out loud, you can. What's our only hope in life and death? Anybody? Help them out. Or not our own, but what? We belong to God and Jesus Christ. Can you, can you see the picture? Like, the sword is not your hope in the face of death. The resurrection is. And even if you wield the sword and delay death, which some of these might have done, Right? Our only hope in life and death is what? It's Christ and Him alone. He drinks to the dregs all the wrath of God so that you and I come to the table to cheers and toast to our joy and communion with Him. Let's pray together as we prepare. God, thank You so much for Your mercy towards us. Thank You for Your care towards us. Thank You that You have loved us in an unspeakable kind of love. And now we ask that you would begin to work a powerful mystery. The Apostle Paul says, Whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. So now from where you are, would you join me Join me in an act of confession and repentance. I'm going to give us just a few silent moments. Would you confess to God? Think of it this way. Confess to God all the places where you need to be more watchful and prayerful. Confess to God all the places you have trusted in the world rather than in the work of Jesus. You have clung to and hoped in the world rather than in Jesus. Join me confessing those things.
Confess to God, where, to God the places where you have not submitted to his will but want to rebel against it. Places where you haven't looked to the Father and said, no, your will be done, but instead have gripped it and wanted your own will to be done. Would you confess that with me now? Hear the words of the Apostle John as he invites you and I to the table. If we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just. And he will forgive us of all unrighteousness and cleanse us of all sin. Jesus, help us to rest in that, help us to bask in that, and Lord, in just a moment, help us to feast on that. For those of us in this morning, maybe we're not believers in Jesus, help us to simply watch a mystery. Help us to even be confounded by uh, what Christians are doing here. But for those of us who have experienced by faith the goodness, the faithfulness that you displayed in that garden about that tree that gives us life, help us to now bask in and revel in the feast of joy we have because of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have slurped up all the wrath. You have slurped up all the justice of God, and all that's left for us now is to cheers to our communion with the Father. Help us to do that faithfully now in Jesus' name. Amen.